all please turn to Isaiah 10. Looking at another prophet today. Isaiah 10 is an interesting chapter, by the way. Um, yeah, you know, this is off topic, uh, but uh, if you were to read it from verse 5 to, what was it? Anyway, 5 and following. Uh, it's, it's very interesting how God works through mankind, how he accomplishes his ends uh, by the will of man whether they be his own people or a pagan nation like the Assyrians. And faults them for what they're doing. So, like in that, in this passage, again, this is just an aside, but it's an important text uh, for this kind of theology. Um, so God became disappointed, offended with his covenant people and their sin, their violation of his law. And he raised up the Assyrians, a pagan nation, to come and discipline them, carry them off from the land. And that's obviously his will, isn't it? But was it the will of the Assyrians to glorify God, to do his will? Of course not. It says it reveals in that text that their object was plunder destruction, conquest. So God can use even the warped, twisted will of man to accomplish his good, his good ends. Um, and that's one great text for that, if you read through that the way it's, the way it's structured. And then he goes on to judge them for what they've done. Why? Because of their motives. Their motive was rape, pillage, plunder, conquest. They were wrong in doing what they want, doing what they did, not because God willed the same event, but because their motives that they took with them and that brought them there. What's another important instance of God using the corrupted will of man to accomplish his good ends? Pilate and the Jews of his generation, Joseph and his brothers all conspiring to do things to Joseph and to, the, to our Lord that are violations of God's law, um, but it affects God's goodwill. So God and fallen man, even, are willing the same events, aren't they? But for different reasons. God's motive being good, and the motives of the, uh, the sinner being bad. And so God judges them for that, that motive. Anyway, it's a great chapter. Um, but we're going to be looking at verse 22, but before we get started, let's, let's open with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege of opening up these Bibles in our own language, which is something that your people have not always had. We thank you, O Lord, for the Reformation. We thank you for the sacrifices that were made. 
by our forefathers in the faith. We ask you to please cause us to treasure this word and help us to understand this portion of it today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I guess that's appropriate because uh, the anniversary of the Reformation is coming up very soon. Um, so Isaiah 10.22. I'll go ahead and start in verse 21. Isaiah 10.21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Note, talking about Israel, in the mind of Isaiah, national Israel. And the verb is return. All right, now, does anybody have a cross-reference Bible and they can tell us if there's anything or any citation of this uh, part of Isaiah in a New Testament epistle or gospel? Romans 9. Romans 9. Let's turn to Romans 9. Again, actually. And verse 27. Okay, Paul says here, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be, what? Will return? Be saved. That's not the same verb. To our way of thinking, that's a very different idea. A return and saved. Well, is Paul talking about? Well, if Isaiah's talking about return to Canaan, Palestine, for the nation, when it says Israel will return. And Paul talks about Israel, the sons of Israel, being saved. Is he talking about a return to the literal land of Palestine? Well, let's look at the context, because we were in this text a little while ago, and he was relying on the prophet Hosea to make a point. Let's go back and remind ourselves what that point was. Let's see here. Um... Uh, Let's go back to 24. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's his thesis. That the vessels of glory includes Jew and Gentile. Put yourself back in the first century. The people of God are who? the Jews. We take it for granted 2,000 years later that of course Gentiles are a part of God's people. Of course. But it wasn't an of course in the first century. 
the apostles were tasked by our Lord with revealing many things about our Lord and the people of God. And in this passage, when he writes to the people in Rome, the church in Rome, he's informing them of something new, something very significant, something that he feels he needs to prove, even from uh, the Old Testament scriptures, which in their own terms appear to be focused on the nation, the ethnic descendants of Abraham. So that's his thesis. That's his point. And then, in the next verse, he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will call it sons of the living God. And Isaiah. So he's, he's bringing forward like if you're a lawyer and you're making a case, you have a point you're trying to make, and then you cite cases. So if you're arguing a certain point and there's a precedent in the law, you can say, as such and such versus the United States decided by the Supreme Court in 1947 says, and as... Michigan v. Texas says in 1966. So he's saying the same thing. He's saying, here's my point, and here's why you need to believe this point. This is radical stuff, I understand, Paul says. But the Gentiles are a part of God's people now, too. As Hosea says, as Isaiah says. So we looked at what Hosea said once before um, in Paul's handling of it. And in Peter's handling of it as well, the same texts in Hosea, same context. And then he goes on to cite this Isaiah 22. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So, why would he use a text from Isaiah talking about the ethnic descendants of Abraham returning to the land promised to him, Isaac and Jacob, as the text to prove Gentiles are a part of the kingdom of God unless it means more than what the prophet thought. Namely, that the number of the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven promised to Abraham long ago is being fulfilled in the combining of the Jews and the Gentiles together like one olive tree, one household like we saw in Hebrews, Romans 11. And to prove that point, he points to these texts. And interestingly, he changes the verb from return to saved. Yes? I was just wondering, um, is it possible that there could have been a translation We're going to get to translation, or I guess we could do that now. The question is, is it possible there was a translation error? What, you would, what, what that would mean in theological talk is, um, 
is there a variant, uh, say, like in the New Testament? Are there various New Testament documents of, uh, of Romans, some of which have the verb return and some of which have saved? And the answer is no. They all, the, all, the, all the evidence we have of Romans, they all say saved, not return. Interestingly, the Masoretic text, which is our best Hebrew text for the whole Old Testament, it has, for Isaiah 10.22, return. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, uh, been around before the apostles for a few centuries, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has saved. At least the version of the Septuagint that we have, and that apparently Paul had, because other aspects of his quote resemble the Septuagint more, the Greek Septuagint, than it does the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. So what does that mean? That means that Paul probably knew about both versions, the Hebrew textual tradition and the Greek textual tradition for Isaiah 22. And when he decides to make this point, he elected to use the Septuagint version because that's the point he wants to make. And let's not lose sight of the fact that the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul to the church with this groundbreaking information about the nature of the, the sons of God, the people of Israel. And he uses the verb say, and that's the ultimate point. The divine author of scripture wanted the apostle to communicate to us that when the prophet in his prophecy looked forward to the return of Israel to Palestine, According to the Apostle, it meant Gentiles being saved along with Jews. It's an interesting shift, isn't it? And it was actually my reading this one day, right around the time I watched a video by a dispensationalist. I just happened to read that, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't know how I knew that it was different. I might have been studying Isaiah at the time and looked up a cross-reference or vice versa. But I said, it says return in the Old Testament and it says saved in the New. And Paul's not talking about any, there's no discussion here of land. So it can't be salvation in the sense of returning from exile and you come back to the actual land and you're in a sense saved. Whew, exile was terrible. There's no mention of land here. The discussion, the point he's making, the case he is making, and the evidences from the Old Testament that he's adducing to justify his claim has nothing to do with the land. It has to do with salvation. Yes? Are there other indicators that show a transition from it being a people group to the individual? I mean, clearly here saved and the other uh, allusions to Gentiles being brought in 
are mixing people groups, but it seems like one of the arguments I've, I've heard in the past was that much of Romans talk was still of people groups rather than individuals. Mm. So I'm just curious if there were. Yeah, in Romans 9, that's a good question. The question is, uh, I, if, if I understand the whole of it, I mean, I understand that certain people who challenge a lot of the message of Romans 9, God's sovereign election, they argue that God is talking about groups of people receiving his blessings rather than individuals being saved when it comes to the question of election. So that's the question. Um, and you're asked if there were other examples. I mean, this is clearly one where return would be a people group from exile, where say would be a different collection of people or individuals. Yeah, I'd say the biblical evidence is mixed on the question of group and individual election. You can make the case that there's some discussion here in Romans 9 that implicates a corporate identity. However, he starts talking about, he, he breaks down that corporate identity and goes to the individual when he talks about Jacob and Esau. They're both members of the same visible church, covenant community. They both receive the sign as well. And yet, the election Paul's talking about here makes a distinction between these two individual men. Um, and it talks about before they, they were even born. And he also goes on to talk about Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart as an individual and God raised him up for a certain purpose there's no real corporate identity thing going on there but just to attempt at an answer um, it's in the, new, in the Bible it's both um, and in the New Testament there seems to be more of an em emphasis on the individual arguably than in the Old Testament just for my own clarification the passage in Isaiah that's later translated in Romans kind of seems to be saying that not all Israel is part of the elect, that they're not, that not all of them are picked up for lack of God's people, like they are part of the ethnic group, but they're not all part of the church. And I guess kind of later on implies that there's going to be others. But I'm just curious, I don't see the Gentiles there. I know it's in there. I just I was wondering if this verse specifically is more talking about not all Jews are Christians, I guess. For Let's look at verse... Okay, so the question is, um, I think, and you can clarify this so I don't get it wrong, um, that Paul's not talking about Jews and Gentiles together forming Israel. He's talking about faithful Israel within Israel. Well, the not all ethnic Jews are going to be part of the church. That is true. Only a remnant of them is saved in this, it's obviously in this version, maybe I'm missing something. Yes, I mean, oftentimes when they're talking, he's talking about the remnant, throughout this, this chapter of his epistle, 9 through 11, I should say, this is kind of a chapter. Um, for, uh, chap chapters 9 through 11 is kind of a chapter itself. But let's look at verse 6. Paul's making that point here. But it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he points out his offspring, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau. So God's sovereign election 
there is a corporate aspect to that. Consider all the peoples of the world, and God sovereignly elected one people group. That's a corporate election, isn't it? That's a group election. Individual election takes place within that corporate election, within that sphere. Um, he does. He 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 chooses by his, through his grace um, who will be saved. So that's the distinction between the visible church and uh, the invisible church. The elect within the covenant community, called the remnant oftentimes. And interestingly, again, to, to bolster our point, Paul is using these texts and these words about remnant as he's including the Gentiles into the people of God, whom he calls Israel. Let's not forget that he is making this reference to Isaiah including these words like remnant, to prove the point that the elect people of God is the Gentiles also. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentile, as indeed he says in Hosea, and Isaiah, Hosea, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So as we know, in the last century, I brought this up several times, many thousands of ethnic Jews have returned to what was once called the Holy Land, or Palestine. And a new Jewish state was established in 1948. Um, That is not what Paul's talking about when he handles this Old Testament passage. There's no reference to to the land anymore. The idea is the kingdom of God, the one people of God, comprised of an elect remnant from the Jews and vessels of mercy. I said glory earlier, forgive me, vessels of mercy, which is comprised of Gentile as well as Jew. So what is the Holy Spirit by Paul telling us Isaiah's return to the land by national Israel really means. Return of Israel for the prophet meant salvation of Gentiles for the apostle. Consider the Hosea reference. You know, the Gentiles who were cut off from God were unclean as a class. Are in a sense, or were in a sense, not my people. Paul uses that language from Hosea when he's justifying his claim that Gentiles are part of the church. He's using that claim, uh, that language from Hosea that says, you were not my people, but you are my people. You were not my beloved, but you are my beloved. So, Paul's point actually serves to, by the Holy Spirit, exegete the prophet for us. Any other comments or questions about that? It 
So Paul is in verses 27 through 29 simply continuing to adduce passages from the Old Testament to prove his proposition asserted in verse 24, namely that Gentiles too, along with Jews, are among those being called into the kingdom and being crafted into vessels of mercy. Paul, in verses 25 and 26, proves this proposition by revealing the true significance and understanding, first of Hosea's Israel prophecies, and then continues to do the very same thing from Hosea and his return to the land and return to favor prophecy. On up to verse 930, where he puts the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Let's look at 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? So he starts off saying, lo and behold, people of God, the people of God includes Gentiles. Here's what Hosea says, they were not my people, now they're my people. Here's what Isaiah says, they're going to be saved. And then he ends up on the other end of the bookend by saying, with this rhetorical question, what shall we say then? I've I've made this point. I've I've brought forth my proofs from the prophets. So where does that leave us, he asks rhetorically. That the Gentiles, these pagan nations, who never pursued God, his righteousness, his kingdom, have attained it. Put yourself back in the first century. For the Jews who were hearing this and... uh, for the Jews who are hearing this, that's, that's information they need. Consider all the, I mean, the main issue in the New Testament, the main cause of strife, is the role of Judaism in the church. How much of the law of Moses is still relevant? Do we observe the ceremonial law anymore? Do we have to circumcise? Does baptism replace it? The main question in the New Testament It was the main source of conflict between Peter and Paul. So the big question is being addressed by Paul here. At least the main themes of it. So he says, are we we supposed to believe that Gentiles who never sought God's righteousness have attained it? So the point is the Gentiles. The texts are Israel. Don't lose sight of that. Now, it's a useful exercise since this is a class dealing largely with dispensationalism. How would they respond to this? I'm actually putting that one out there for you. As they have previously. Yes, John? I'll do with disbelief initially, but upon consideration, it would be very compelling because both Isaiah and Hosea were two of their, we'll call it 18 prophets. <laughs> right. They are. He's, uh, Hosea's got the largest book um, uh, of the minor prophets, and Isaiah is arguably the, you know, the greatest writing prophet of the Old Testament. Um, But it would be very important at that particular time for them, especially in Rome, to start beginning to accept those that were not Jews 
and they'd already come to believe that they were no longer required to necessarily circumcise them to join. Right. But this would essentially break down the remaining barriers of them considering them brothers. And John said that uh, this kind of language from Paul would break down the barriers between Jew and Gentile in a significant way, and that's true. How do you approach that text, this sort of argumentation from an apostle? Well, customarily, they respond to these texts uh, by saying, well, Paul's using that language, but it's not being fulfilled here. It's being fulfilled later in Israel. But as we've seen, the New Testament redefines Israel, redefines Abraham's offspring, redefines the term Jew. We, we dealt with that at the very beginning of the class. And that was important to do that first. But it takes these prophecies, which on their, their face, you know, with a kind of a, a, a narrow prophetic focus on the nation. And with the benefit of the Holy Spirit interpreting the Old Testament text for us, the apostles tell us, it's bigger than that. The people of God is bigger. And we're no longer concerned with that land. And he even goes so far as to substitute to prefer, I should say, the verb save to the verb return. It's the same verb used for individual salvation throughout the New Testament. Here it's the future passive third person, sothesitai. You may have heard the verb sozo. Uh, soter meaning savior. Um, it's the same verb in Greek. Are any other comments or questions? I just find it interesting that we are talking of it today in a very normal manner that Israel does not need to return back to a land while at the end of the Second World War that's, you know, we have a very creation of a nation state and it's uh, you just wonder if a large part of that was due to a misunderstanding of, of future needs for the, uh, from a biblical worldview. Yeah, I mean, the Zionism which doesn't mean anything other than Jews should have a homeland of their own in Palestine. That's all Zionism means. Uh, you know, Mount Zion being in that, that part of the world. Or at least it once was. I guess it's... Uh, I think the Romans did some, some excavating there or something, but I don't think that Zion is actually a discernible mount anymore. Somebody can correct that out for me. I believe that's the case. Read that, read that somewhere. Um, but that, that movement was around, yeah, for decades prior to uh, 
That was a shocking prediction on Jesus' part. And uh and Paul's writing these things before that. So they were Yeah. Jerusalem looks pretty safe. Yeah, the Romans are out. But it was and yeah, we've been kicked out time and time again. But Paul's reminding them this is not about the land. Yeah, and what did Jesus have to tell us about the temple of the Lord? He redefined that too. He said, you know, three days. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. An apostle adds a gloss. He says he's talking about the temple of his body. The New Testament redefines the temple to be Christ and his church, doesn't it? It refers to our Lord as a temple, and it refers to you are a temple in Corinthians. You are the temple of God. And what is the, te- what is the temple? but God's dwelling place with man. Did you? Exactly, in First Peter as well. That we are being built up into a household for God as living stones, built upon the chief cornerstone, to rely on other language elsewhere. But the, the temple of the Lord and the tabernacle was always God's dwelling with man. When they were sojourning through the desert, it was the, this, this tent, tabernacle, that communicated God's presence. He would meet with them there through his representatives. And that's how they knew God was with us. And then the temple was built, a more permanent structure, relatively speaking, but always pointing to something bigger and greater and unexpected, at least by most. But Jesus Christ is God with us now. He is Emmanuel. And that's why one of, that's one of his names and titles. He is God with us. He is the temple of the Lord. And his bride, united to him, is the temple of the Lord. So, you can't understand the Old Testament. You will read it with that same veil over the eyes of the unbelieving Jewish reader of the Old Testament. Dispensationalism takes that veil and puts it on itself. And it understands the Old Testament without the enlightenment provided by the new. I understand the the desire to embrace a hermeneutic that wants to give full justice to the Old Testament passages, like from Hosea and Isaiah, where it talks about Israel and it talks about the land. They want to give full justice to that language. And I understand that. But if it prompts the interpreter to weasel around what the apostles are doing with those prophecies, I reject it. I am not going to step away from the apostles and their handling of those texts to embrace a different interpretation driven by that principle of hermeneutics. The fact is, you don't have to embrace that principle of hermeneutics. Things have changed. The New Testament as it's, and its approach to the Old is a purely Christian thing. You cannot come to these conclusions about the prophets but for the New Testament documents. This is the Christian interpretation of the prophets. 
essentially being given the same benefit the apostles were given. We have a text today that explains things to us just as they had things explained to us to them by the Savior. Right. And whenever they would be told a, uh, a, one of the stories, they would ask questions and he would respond. I think it would be, like you said, it was, there's no reason to try to, to disregard or to, to not pay attention to what we've been told in the New Testament. The point John's making, and I, and I repeat this just for the uh, folks watching at home and, uh, and the recording. Um, we have the benefit of the instruction that the Lord gave the apostles in these texts. It's our only insight into our Lord's teaching is the writings of these, these men. And whether he was teaching them these things in person during his earthly ministry or in fulfillment of his promise in John 16 that he would send the, the Spirit for his apostles, the context makes it clear, it was for the apostles, that he would lead them, the, the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth. And so, with great trepidation, would I argue, would any Christian approach those prophets now and come to a different interpretation of what they mean than the apostles? with great fear and trepidation would I venture to second guess or to hedge what the apostles are doing here because of a principle that I feel I need to adopt on how to interpret the Old Testament. No thank you. I say no thank you to that. That's a man-made principle, isn't it? It sounds reasonable. It sounds pious and scholarly. But it's not what the apostles say and I choose the apostles. There's no evidence in the New Testament when these apostles are handling those texts that this is just a partial fulfillment, that there's more later involving ethnic national Israel. No indication of it. It's always the same. Jew and Gentile as part of the one people of God in the kingdom together in peace with each other and with God is the fulfillment of of the Old Testament texts promising a return to the land. Return to the land. Paul says, salvation for Jew and Gentile. And that's my interpretation, and that's covenant theology's interpretation. And so I would encourage brothers and sisters who embrace dispensationalism out there in the wider world to consider that. How dangerous it would be to adopt an interpretation of the prophets different than the one provided, the only one provided for us authoritatively by the apostles and the Holy Spirit speaking through them. Now this is not unusual. Um, I'm going to take us to Hebrews 11 in a second. I'm going to read this paragraph that I yanked out of my paper and made, a, made as a footnote here, just to kind of add a little bit more to the question of textual variance uh, in the Hebrew versus the Septuagint. Um, so go ahead and turn to Romans 11 and I'll just read this, or excuse me, Hebrews 11, and I'll read this. 
In Romans 9, verse 27, the Apostle Paul cites this prophecy from Isaiah, apparently rather loosely, and notably relies on his copy or memory of a version of the Septuagint and not upon a Hebrew text of Isaiah. While the Masoretic text has uh, Sha'ar Yeshuv, which, which is a remnant will return, which is reflected in the King James and modern English versions of Isaiah, including the ESV, Paul prefers in Romans to use his Septuagint, which has a remnant sothesitai in Greek. That is, a remnant will be saved. You know, as I read on here, a lot of this is kind of deep in the weeds of textual traditions, so let's just skip that. Okay, that's, that's fine. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. All right, this is the hall of faith. uh, Twice now, I try to call Hebrews 11, Romans 11. Uh, This is the hall of faith. It it catalogs uh, heroes of the faith and showcases their faith and how how it glorified God and served his purpose and resulted in their salvation. Uh, Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he's called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. What's he talking about? I'm going to stop here. What is he talking about? Uh, If you were to ask a Jew, what was he promised to receive? What place? Canaan, Palestine. Okay, well, let's read on. That was his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going from the land of Ur. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. Now here's the key. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now here's the the punchline. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There's a comparison and a contrast between that last verse and what preceded it because that's the point where we're talking about Abraham his faith when he was given this promise of a place he looked through that physical literal land and perceived something better that was being promised The new Jerusalem, the city of God, the kingdom of God. So, yet more direction from the New Testament on how the saints are to interpret the land promise, the people and place promise, as we've called it before. The people and place promised to Abraham as his inheritance was something that Abraham himself looked through like a shadow to the reality. The reality he was looking for was not Palestine. Abraham understood that that was a type, that that was a picture, that that was a shadow of the real thing promised. Throughout the New Testament, the testimony is consistent. It's always telling the same thing. 
Even when our Lord compared the well, when he met the woman at the well in John 4, said, you know, this, this is the promised land we're standing in here. And this well was Jacob's well. He's one of the heirs of the same promise as Abraham, like it says here in Hebrews 11. But this water will never slake your thirst. This water was never the substance, the fruit of the land was never the actual substance of the promise. Behold, I am the substance of the promise. I and those who are united with me by saving faith. Language in the New Testament, isn't it? You know, how, how does it go? Someone help me. Uh, wells of living water will spring up from within you, he says to his disciples. I forget the reference. Somebody could help me with that, where that is. We all know that's in the New Testament. We know our Bibles. I'm sorry that I didn't come prepared to add that, or the Jacob's well thing, but you see the point. The, the New Testament's always telling the same story. That was a type, a shadow, a picture. Pictures are useful. They tell you something about what it's a snapshot of. But the New Testament comes along and tells us that's not the reality. That's just a picture. The reality is Christ in union with his bride, made up of Jew and Gentile together, living in peace with one another and with God in the kingdom. And that is what covenant theology believes. The New Testament is telling us. That is what the new, uh, covenant theology believes. The Old Testament's telling us. What makes us say that? Because we're curmudgeonly and we like to argue with dispensationalists? Because the testimony of the New Testament leaves us no choice. And we don't want to put that veil on and not have the benefit when we read the Old Testament. When we read Moses, I'm doing air quotes a lot today, I don't know why. When we read Moses, we don't want to read Moses with the same veil that Paul says drapes the eyes of the unbelieving Jewish person when they read it and they don't get it. By virtue of the benefit that we have of the New Testament writings inspired by the Holy Spirit, that veil's removed. We can behold Christ in the Old Testament and these other things too. Any other comments or questions before we wrap up? In Jeremiah 2, 13 and then 17, 13, the Lord is is described by the prophet as a spring of living water. Oh, yeah. Indeed. All right. That was John 2 and John 17, right? No, Jeremiah. I'm sorry, Jeremiah. Yes, thank you. Uh, the Lord is described as wells of springing, wells of living water? Yes. Yeah. Spring of living water. Spring of living water. Thank you. All right, well, let's close with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... This great and in many ways unexpected fulfillment of your promises to the fathers. We thank you that you've condescended to give us yourself rather than a mere place. We ask that you would help us to understand it and the rest of the other church to understand it as well. Please increase our understanding of your word and your purposes for us. And please receive our worship this morning as we gather together to exalt your holy name, both now and forever. Amen.